This podcast is sponsored by Collins. High quality primary and secondary resources for both students and teachers. Collins will help you deliver a knowledge rich and ambitious geography curriculum. Take a look at their range of atlases, revision guides, and workbooks too. JogPod listeners get 25% off Collins Geography resources until the end of June 21. Simply head to collins.co.uk forward slash jogpod and enter the code jogpod at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Today on JogPod, it gives me great pleasure to be joined by Professor Jamie Woodward, who's Professor of Physical Geography in the Department of Geography at the University of Manchester. Jamie, you're a geomorphologist and your particular interests are in the nature and impacts of the quaternary environment change in the Mediterranean region, the Nile Basin. You've also worked on rivers in the UK and really interesting, produced some recently some very influential papers on microplastics in rivers. A good deal of your work involves quite close collaboration with archaeologists, often in fluvial settings, and you're working at the theoretical and practical interface between geography, geoscience and archaeology. I know that you and your other colleagues set up uh, the Quaternary Environments and Geoarchaeology Research Group in late 2004. We've got lots to talk about, so welcome to JogPod. Thank you, John. Delighted to be here. I'd, I'd like to talk today about two different areas of your work. They are really quite different. I've just read The Ice Age, a very short introduction, which I think is a must-read book for anyone interested, not just about The Ice Age, but the development of our understanding of global climate change and its impact. <clears throat> if I was still teaching, I'd definitely be giving that to my students to read. But I've also just read your article, Microplastics in Rivers, in the Environmental Scientist Journal, and just picked up on the 2021 paper about microplastics in nature sustainability. I find what you're writing about is, is pretty shocking and something I really didn't know much about at all. Both of these are really important examples of how research in physical geography can influence policy development. That, I think that's fascinating because some people will say physical geography doesn't do that sort of thing. But in this case, for both of them, it's a really important, not just not just um, policy nationally, but policy globally. Yeah, indeed. I, I would say, that, you know, physical geography, um, there's a lot of physical geography research that does influence policy. Absolutely. Uh, and the microplastics is just just one example. Um, since that paper was published in Nature Sustainability just last month, um, there's been a lot of um, activity on the impact of that paper. Um, for example, I spoke uh, the week before last to the all-party parliamentary group on microplastics, for example, and I've been asked to do a, give a written submission to the Environmental Audit Committee of UK Parliament, which is currently involved in an inquiry into river water quality across the UK, and there's, there's a lot of concern about sewage discharge to rivers by water companies, etc. So there's a lot of work going on at the moment around UK rivers and the quality of those rivers and physical geographers are feeding into that process and microplastics is just one example um, where we you know that we have important things to say and we've made important strides in terms of understanding microplastics in rivers. I must say I didn't 
I didn't really think about microplastics in rivers at all. I, I, I knew about it in the oceans, but when I read your work, that's just really fascinating. And I really want to come back to that. But to start with, I'd like to talk about the Quaternary and your work there. Um, and some of the things that I picked up uh, reading the Ice Age, uh, I, what, I, what I got from that was, it was really interesting thinking about the path taken to reach our present day knowledge. It's about knowledge creation. And as new knowledge turns up, us having to rethink the way that we see how the world is shaped. I, I read about the, when they discovered the remains of the woolly mammoths, they were thinking, oh, crikey, this, they, these must have been washed there by the great flood, northwards to Siberia. And then we see scientists changing their minds. Well, or not in some cases. But in, in your book, you talk about Charles Darwin, who, who wrote about his one long gigantic blunder <laughs> as he began to realise that uh, what he'd originally proposed was being overtaken by a tsunami of new information. Would you give us a, 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 probably the best type, place to start is with, with Mikhail Adams and his discovery. Could you give us a brief overview about this modern era? Because it's the start of debating climate change. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the Ice Age, the book you just referred to, um, I, I do spend quite a bit of time, when I was writing that book, I became fascinated by the intellectual journey that was taken in the 19th century and how the idea of climate change became a reality because um, many of the early natural scientists and geologists in the early part of the 19th century um, didn't recognise climate change uh, as a phenomenon, as a long-term process. There's a lot of... Um, a lot of argument about this, but most people suggested that the Earth's climate had been fairly stable. Now, the geological record, now we know the geological record tells us that clearly isn't the case. But um, I tried to pitch this in the context of there were definitely climate sceptics at this time. There were people who were very resistant to the idea that the climates had changed. And there are some interesting parallels with today. And there was lots of, lots of interesting developments going on in the first half of the 19th century. Uh, like Georges Cuvier in Paris, the great anatomist, for example, he was the first person to demonstrate that extinction was a reality. You know, that beasts could become extinct. And of course, there's, 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 the, there's the well um, discussed conflict between science and the church, etc., which has been somewhat overstated. And, and, and then geologists, we did, even though they didn't call themselves geologists at that point, we're getting grip, getting, trying to get a grip on time and you know, how much time is involved in the formation of certain deposits, etc. And so there's a great big melting pot of ideas uh, and really colourful characters. So it was a really interesting time. Now, you mentioned uh, Adams and the Adams mammoth. Now, that mammoth was discovered in 1799 in Siberia. And, um, and it created a lot of confusion because some people are arguing that, you know, they were often referred to as woolly elephants. They were regarded as being elephants that had been washed forward by the, washed northwards by the biblical flood and buried in the diluvium. And... Um, but Cuvier saw the remains of the Adams mammoth and he demonstrated that that beast no longer existed. It wasn't an elephant, it was a different species. So he identified this was a mammoth. It was, a, it was different from modern elephants. And also what was crucial, he identified that it had various characteristics that showed that this was a beast that was adapted to living in a cold environment. Hmm. So it wasn't an elephant that had been washed from tropical latitudes to Siberia. It was a beast that was designed to live in a cold climate. Now, of course, around about the same time we started finding mammoth bones in France and in Britain 
So if this was a beast that was adapted to live in the cold, you know, freezing cold conditions in Siberia, how, what on earth was this beast doing in Britain and doing in France? So people started to think, well, maybe the climate had changed. Maybe we do need to start thinking about climate change, uh, the climate going from, from warm to cold. So for the rest of the 19th century then, uh, there were big debates about, you know, the, if there'd been an ice age, the, the extent of glaciers, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of evidence from different directions, landscapes, sediments, fossils, which were pointing to climate change and pointing to the fact that glaciers and ice sheets have been much bigger in the past. And, um, and then the debate moved on to about, you know, if there were glacial periods, how many glacial periods were they? How long did they last, et cetera? And, and some key questions were posed that, you know, we, we weren't able to tackle for, for another 150 years or so uh, until we actually had the methods and the techniques to date these records and actually to look at the full quaternary record. And, and that ultimately came from the work in the oceans in, in the 1950s and 60s and, and, and 70s. So this was a really, the, the early part of the 19th century was a really formative time in terms of the development of ideas and, and interpreting the, the geological record. So I found that fascinating. So did I, I found that really fascinating. I've, I've, I've seen the parallel roads in Scotland and I found it fascinating that there were lots of different ways to interpret those in the past. Yeah, that's a really nice example. I mean, in, in Glenroy, there's those very distinctive horizontal benches. And um, Darwin looked at those and thought they were, they were, they were shorelines of an ancient ocean. They, were, they re represented shorelines of, of, of sea level change. And then, of course, Agassiz went up to Scotland in 1840 um, after a conference in Glasgow, and he was taken on a tour of parts of Scotland with, with, uh, with William Buckland, the famous Oxford geologist. And when he saw those, he'd seen similar features in the Alps. He'd basically seen valleys that had been blocked by glaciers and they'd produced produce glacial lakes. And so these were shorelines of a glacial lake. He was convinced by this. And this led him to put forward this idea that, that Britain had been glaciated. Now, Buckland had already developed some of those ideas as well, but Agassiz kind of stole all the glory because he was, he was good at that. But it, it was a very radical uh, suggestion at the time that then Britain had been glaciated. These weren't um, shorelines from an ancient sea. These were shorelines from a glacial lake. So uh, people like Charles Lyell and, and Charles Darwin, who had put forward this idea of a, of a, of a great sort of marine submergence, um, this was a big challenge to, to, to their ideas. You know, there's this upstart from Switzerland coming along, you know, in their, looking in their backyard and telling them things about their geology that they've been agonising over for, for decades. So that really crystallised the idea that, that Britain had been glaciated. Now, prior to that, um, there were workers in the Alps who'd shown that the glaciers in the Alps had formed and been much bigger. And even the Alps had been covered in a big ice sheet. And, and that, was, that was palatable for most geologists because the Alps have glaciers now. We can see there are glaciers there. So the fact that those glaciers are a bit bigger in the past, that was okay. But coming to Britain, of course, a landscape without any glaciers and suggesting that glaciers had, had been present in Britain and actually they'd been pretty big, that was a really radical step forward. And that also you know, suggested you know, climate change is, is on the agenda. So um, that was a big step forward in 1840. Put showing that Britain had been glaciated. And, and, and that, that was a really transformational um, declaration, if you like, that made people, and then of course the debate then raged for decades about the nature of that glaciation, the style of the glaciation, et cetera. So uh, those, those, those ideas and those egos and those characters, uh, it's a, it was a really interesting time to think about the intellectual development of ideas. I think that'd be a really interesting topic to take up with with A-level students, because quite often they're just presented with this is the glacial landscape. Oh, yeah. Rather than 
look at what we've got here. How many different ways could we interpret this? And how has it been interpreted in the past? Would be a fascinating way to lead into them being a bit more um, of investigators of, of the landscape rather than just being being generally told what they're seeing. I think that's a good point. And, and, and there was a reviewer of the book who made that point. So, you know, if you go into the British landscape, very often you know, you we take students into the landscape because they're studying glaciation and we're going to look at the evidence to form a glaciation. So we kind of made our minds up already what we're going to find. But take those students into the landscape uh, without any preconceived ideas. And OK, so what's happening here? What's the evidence? What can you see? And, uh, and, and put, put the pieces together and, and, and think about how easy would it be to get that wrong, you know, and take, take yourself back to the 1830s, you know, what was the state of our knowledge at that point? Um, so, and also one of the things I tried to get across in that book is there were some really powerful personalities, people like Roderick Murchison and Charles Lyell, who published huge books and huge treaties, and they spent years writing these. And they weren't going to change their mind overnight, um, you know, because they were big influential figures in, in London society as well. So um, the, the glacial theory came along at a, at a really interesting time. But it, it, even though Agassiz had put forward the idea of an ice age as well, a, a, a cold period and, and bigger glaciers, etc. In the UK in particular, it was actually decades and right up to the end of the 19th century before some of these ideas were, were widely accepted. That comment that you've written about Murchison comparing glacial striations and then looking at scratches from horse-drawn carriages in London was an interesting one. Well, of course, he was he was mocking the idea then, of course. He said, you know, so every scratch that we see on a London street, should we should we suggest that's the former action of a glacier? So um he, he was he was he was he was mocking the whole the whole idea at that point. And he was a great performer, he was a great grandstander, he was a real bruiser at the Geological Society. So um and he, the, the year before, he published his big treatise on the on the geology of the borderlands between Wales and England, and the, the idea of the Silurian. But he'd also talked about what he called the drift. And um, it's really interesting that Murchison and, and, and Lyle came up with the idea of, of drift. And um, even when I was at university as an undergraduate in the 1980s, we'd go to the library, you'd get some, you'd get the geological map, you'd get the hard rock map, and you'd get the drift map. Well, that drift map, that drift map, that, that term drift basically comes from Murchison because he was arguing that these glacial, they weren't glacial deposits, they were deposits from drifting ice that was floating in an ocean. And so that idea of drift became embedded in literature right up till very recent times. And it was, it was second nature, we talked about the drift map. Well, that drift map goes right back to the argument about glaciers or, or floating ice in the middle of the 19th century. So uh, once these things get have a history and they're stuck in the literature, and these are terms that we use often without thinking about their origin. So that's fascinating. Well, that's it. I, you know, I didn't know that. And I, <laughs> I know we don't use the term that anymore, but I hadn't, I hadn't realised its origin at all. Yeah, we still widely use the term drift. It's often used in America, you know, the, you know, the driftless landscapes, for example. It's often used in terms of its presence and its absence. So, yeah, th these terms are loaded. These, these have histories. And so it's, it's really useful to interrogate them. I also want to ask you a little bit about the nature of the Ice Age and the Quaternary, because I, I think people who don't study this imagine that it's just one long period of cold temperatures, but it wasn't at all. No, and, and, and that debate evolved in the 19th century. So once people had accepted there had been, you know, an Ice Age or, or a glacial period, you know, when glaciers were bigger in the past. Um, of course, we didn't know at that time how long this glacial period was. Um, the first real suggestions of sort of complexity that the climate could shift from warm to cold and back again 
came from work in the Alps by two famous uh, geographers, geomorphologists called Penck and Bruckner. And they, they argued that the Alps had been glaciated four times. So they argued for four glacials and four interglacials. So we, we, we knew at that point that the Quaternary was a, was a complex period and the climate could change from being from warm, like the present day, uh, to, to cold glacial periods when you could get ice sheets forming in latitude of, of Britain, for example. So um, we've got a series of glacials and interglacials, but of course then for, for most of the 20th century, there's a big argument about how many glacials and interglacials there were. And, uh, and, and that's more than just a, an argument about the geological record. It's, it's about, you know, well, what makes the climate change? People started asking those questions. Why would the climate shift from glacial to interglacial? And how many glacials and interglacials were there? So what's the pace of change, for example? So, um, and that was the, that characterized much of the debate for, for most of the 20th century. And in fact, right up to the time when I was an undergrad, for example, in the 1980s in Aberystwyth, when I did the Quaternary with, with DQ Bowen, um, it was only 10 years um, after that, that Nick Shackleton had published his famous work on, on, the, on, the, on the marine records, showing that there were multiple glacial interglacial cycles during the Quaternary. So in some ways, when I was an undergraduate, some of those ideas were still quite fresh then, and I'm not that old. So um, the ideas, um, the, you know, the second half of the 20th century was a really exciting time in quaternary science as well. So I think to answer your question on glacials, you now the glacials are a, a, a long periods of, of predominantly colder climate. Um, glacials often last maybe about 80,000 years, and then interglacials are, are, are shorter periods, maybe 10 to 20,000 years in duration. Um, and we now know during the Quaternary, of, which is the last two and a half million years, there were approximately 50 glacial interglacial cycles. And we now know that from the study of the marine record, which gives us a continuous record of, of sedimentation. So there's great complexity in the, uh, in the Quaternary. Can I ask you just a bit about definitions? Because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about how interchangeable these are or whether they're different. Interglacial, interstadial, what's the difference? Yeah, well, uh, and we're, we're living in an interglacial now, the, what we call the Holocene, which has been the last 11,000 years or so. Uh, and then prior to that, we had an, a long glacial period of about 80,000 years. Now, an interstadial is a, is a brief period of climate warming that happens within a glacial period. So it might just be um, a, a thousand, a couple of thousand years. So it's a brief warming and then back to cold conditions again. But it's, it's not a full interglacial. So it doesn't last for the 10,000 years of an interglacial. So we've got lots of evidence for interstadials in Britain, for example, where the climate warmed briefly. Uh, we might get an increase in tree cover. We might get some warm loving insects flying into Britain, but, um, but it wasn't sustained enough for you know, the development of, of deciduous woodland, for example, which takes much longer for those trees to migrate from Southern Europe, et cetera. So interstadials are relatively brief warmings within a longer period of cold. So when I was taking my A-level students up to Aaron, we talk about the Loch Lomond re-advance. How does that all fit? Well, at the, yeah, at the end of the last glacial period, um, there were, the climate fluctuated. There was a series of, of stadials and interstadials. So the Loch Lomond stadial, uh, for example, which is often called the Younger Dryas, um, as the climate warmed at the end of the last glacial, the climate suddenly was cold again for, for several hundred years, about 700, 800 years. And that's known as the Loch Lomond stadial. And it was cold enough uh, for, for glaciers to reform in, in the uplands of, of Scotland. And then the climate warmed again and we have the shift to the, to the Holocene. So we get these blips. So the initial idea was that the, the Ice Age was one long period of remitting 
unremitting bitter cold climate and we now know it's 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 much more complex than that in that we've had glacials and interglacials but also um, within the cold stages or within the glacials we can have periods of warming brief periods of warming and we can even have periods of cooling within us within an interglacial like little ice age for example hmm. so we have uh, different cycles of of climate change so climate change happening on different time scales and different intensities why do we have such variations i I know you just said it's complicated, but quite often on A-level papers, they'll be asked about why do we have variations and what's our evidence for it? Well, what's interesting, and that's uh, when I was a student, the um, the, the big Milankovitch revolution, um, the, when we started looking at the marine record in detail in the 60s and 70s, and there was a, there was a, there was a really famous paper published in 1976, which looked at the long marine records. Now, the marine records are important because in the oceans, you get fine-grained sediments deposited on the ocean floor, more or less continuously, and they don't get eroded away. They're not disturbed. So if, you, if you're able to put a sediment core down through those deposits, you can get a full record through the whole of the quaternary and back into earlier geological deposits as well. Whereas the problem on the continent, if you work in Britain, because we've had ice sheets uh, scraping the landscape, the geological record is fragmentary. So ice sheets uh, destroy much of the previous record. So we only have a very fragmentary and sort of piecemeal record of the quaternary. So we only have little bits that are preserved in different places. So the marine record basically showed us that um, we've got uh, multiple glacials and interglacials. The study of that record also showed that the glacial interglacial cycles were basically paced by Milankovitch cycles. So Miluta Milankovitch, the, the Serbian engineer and mathematician who put forward these ideas in the 1930s and 1940s about how variations in the Earth's relationship with the sun, the changes in the amount of solar radiation received in different latitudes was, was basically the main control on climate change during the ice ages. Now those Milankovitch cycles operate over fairly long timescales. There's a 100,000 year cycle, there's a 42,000 year cycle, and there's a 23,000 year cycle. So that we call those Milankovitch cycles and, and, and Milankovitch forcing, but we also know the climate's changed over much much more briefer timescales, over, over lower timescales, if you like, within those Milankovitch cycles. And there are other reasons for that. Um, it could be variations in the intensity of solar radiation from the sun, such as sunspot cycles, for example. We know that the climate can change as a result of, um, of volcanic eruptions. That tends to happen much more briefly. So... The, the, the more detail we've had about the quaternary and, and the big change in the last few decades is looking at the records in the ice sheets, um, looking at ice cores, has shown that, you know, even during the cold stages, we've had coolings and warmings. So there are different tiers of variability. There's the sort of Milankovitch variability and then there's the, um, there's the much higher resolution change that we see. So we've only been able to do that is by looking at different climate records, different archives of change. And some of the best records we have are the ice core records, which give us almost annual resolution. So we almost have annual weather reports and climate reports for the last 100,000 years or so. So uh, that tells us that the, 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 the quaternary has been really complex. And even the cold stages were punctuated by warmings and coolings. I hadn't realised realized that the, the importance of marine sediments and, and, and the ice core uh, analysis. And then you talked about the um, the work of Hans Erschke, and I hadn't heard of him, and yet he's hugely significant. Yes, there was. Uh, he worked on the on the ice core records, and um, he also looked at the, the um, carbon dioxide content in or the long term carbon dioxide record. 
And that work was able to show, um, and Dan's guard in, in Copenhagen as well, who made really important contributions. We now have these Dan's guard Oeschger cycles, but he was able to show that um, the typical carbon dioxide concentrations during a glacial period, um, around about 180 parts PM, parts per million, whereas in an interglacial, such as we're living in now, pre-industrial, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere should be about 280. Now, of course, we're way over that. We're up to about 419, 420 now. So he, he made the link between um, carbon dioxide concentration to the atmosphere and, and climate change. And then, of course, he then moved into influencing the climate change policy agenda and sort of making recommendations that, you know, we need carbon dioxide is a, is a key player in this game. And if we're going to, um, we need to reduce the concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because the warming that we've seen over the last few decades is directly related to the, the anthropogenic generation of carbon dioxide. Why is he not so well known? Well, uh, if we were talking about plate tectonics, then there are people whose names would trip off. And I know lots of people have worked on this, but the, the, the reading I've done, he seems to be a significant figure that, that I've never heard of. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe because he's a relatively recent figure, um, you know, um, Mangano and plate tectonics, that's, the, that's a classic example from, from, from decades ago. So maybe he'll make his way into the textbooks if he find it. Maybe he should, he should be on the A-level syllabus. Well, uh, yeah, I think so. Perhaps if we keep mentioning it, we, we, <laughs> we might get his name shouted a little bit more loudly. It is a fascinating example, though, of how something as divorced from global climate change as putting down an ice core would then give us the extrapolation to talk about climate change over thousands of years. Yeah, one of the exciting things about looking at quaternary science is um, it, it's exciting because it's an interdisciplinary science. There are lots of disciplines, botanists, glaciologists, climate scientists, geomorphologists like me who look at landscapes, glaciologists, etc. Botanists, zoologists who collaborate to, to reconstruct climate change and ecological change. Uh, and one of the really exciting things about the Quaternary, which sets it apart from earlier geological periods, is the richness of the, what we call archives of environmental change. So we have the, the marine record, we have ice core records, we have peat bogs, lake sediments, etc., coral records, etc. There's a whole really very rich suite of records that tell us about how the climate and the environment has changed. And to understand those records and, and integrate those records, um, we need to work with different, with different disciplines. So one of the exciting things for me in, in, in my career is, is, is basically working with people in different disciplines. And, um, and I've always said to my students, is that, that it's the boundaries between the disciplines, that's where all the sparks are, that's where the excitement is, and where some of the really important questions and some of the really important advances are made. So, um, yeah, so I really just, the, the Quaternion is really important because it's, it's, it's a laboratory that we have for understanding how the how the how the earth system behaves uh, why the climate changes and, and how ecological systems respond to those climate changes so um you know the study of the quaternary is really very important and it provides the context for everything that's happening today that's a nice leading to something else that i want to talk to you about that's happening today um I'd like to ask you about your other research. They, in the Environmental Scientists in February 2020, there was a piece called The World Wakes Up to Waste, and you co-authored a paper on microplastics. And I came to that after watching your TED talk, and then I've just had a chance to read your latest paper, the, the 2021 paper in Nature Sustainability. 
I'd opened my eyes to a problem I didn't even know existed. I've read about microplastics. I knew there were a problem in the ocean, but I hadn't a clue there were a problem in the rivers. This, was, this is fascinating, but also hugely problematic. And I know it's exercising you a lot at the moment. Did you start your work in 2015 and did you realise where it was going to end up? Well, uh, lots, lots to unpack here, but it just it, it might be useful at this point just to, just to step back a little bit. Because when you intro- introduced me, John, and talked about my research interests, it, on, at face value, it might seem like you know my research is just all over the place and they're, they're very sort of disparate. But actually, the, there is a thread that runs through that. So I'm a geomorphologist, but my, my main interest is in, in river systems. So I'm a fluvial geomorphologist. I'm interested in how rivers behave and how rivers change over time. And my PhD work was in Greece, working with archaeologists, looking at rivers up in the Pindus Mountains and how they changed as a result of, of glaciation and what impact that had on um, the people who lived in the mountains at that time, the archaeological record, etc. I've Since then, I've worked in the, in the Nile Valley with archaeologists, again, looking at the behaviour of the Nile, how that's impacted on human settlements. And what I'm moving towards here, then, while I've been based in Manchester, Manchester is famous for being probably the preeminent city of the Industrial Revolution in the UK. And in some ways, we could say it's, it's the sort of preeminent city of the, of the Anthropocene. So I've got interested in working on the rivers around Manchester um, as sort of classic Anthropocene rivers. And it's another example of my interest in how humans interact with rivers. So whether that's in the Nile Valley or whether it's in the mountains of Greece or whether it's in Manchester, I'm interested in how rivers behave, the, the materials that rivers transport and how humans interact with that. So that's the kind of intellectual journey, the context that links all those different strands together. But uh, in Manchester, I was reading, uh, I saw some of the Blue Planet stuff that David Atcher had been done. I'd been reading about microplastics in the oceans. And I thought, well, where are these microplastics coming from? These microplastics must be coming from rivers and they must be coming from rivers that drain big cities, big dirty cities with lots of people and lots of industry. And Manchester's had lots of water quality problems in its issues in, in its rivers in, in, in recent decades. But actually Manchester's rivers have been a success story because they've cleaned up considerably since the 19, 1980s. So I had a PhD student at the time, Rachel Hurley, who was actually working on heavy metals. So I came into the park one day and said, let's have a look at our samples and see if they contain microplastics because the you know, all these microplastics in the oceans must be coming from river systems. They must be washing them in during flood events. So let's see what the microplastic concentrations are in rivers around here. So we'd had a, a, a suite of samples from 40 sites around Manchester. We got some papers out and we looked at microplastic extraction and preparation methods. And you were right, most of the research up to this point had focused very much on the oceans. We wanted to try and do a, a large-scale study of river systems and try and shift the balance from the marine environment to the, to the terrestrial environment, to the river environment. So Rachel did these analyses, we got some data, and we found that all of our sites, which some were some rural, some were semi-urban, some were right down in the bright lights of Manchester city centre, we found microplastics everywhere. And in some places we found really high concentrations of microplastics. So we produced, produced the first map uh, of, of a sort of 10 rivers, extensive river systems across the UK and demonstrated river, river channel beds is what we were sampling, could be heavily contaminated with microplastics. And that's really, really interesting. So that was 2015. And then in the, in, the, in the winter of 1516, the Boxing Day, um, Storm Eva came over northwest England and produced the biggest flood ever recorded on the River Irwell. So Storm Eva went to the north of Manchester, didn't affect the Mersey to the south, actually, but mostly in the Irwell and its tributaries. Really big flood events, catastrophic in some places. So when we came back into the department after Christmas, we said, you know, it'd be really interesting to see 
to what extent that big flood flushed microplastics from those channel beds and washed them downstream to see if we could quantify that. So we resampled all 40 sites. And we asked got fairly modest floods on the Mersey, which was interesting because the storm went to the north. And we found that at most of the sites, 28 of the sites, the, the microplastic concentrations had reduced significantly and often by an order of magnitude. So, um, you know, we're geographers and geomorphologists, we're interested in processes. So we, we discovered, first of all, that river channel beds could be heavily contaminated with microplastics. We didn't know that before. And we also showed in terms of process, the rivers would clean themselves. That's the good news. So the flood events would scour the beds and flush those microplastics downstream. Now, of course, they then become somebody else's problem. They get washed downstream, ultimately end up in the ocean. But we were able to calculate, um, I think it was um, I can't remember what were the number, 40 odd billion microplastic particles in the winter of 1516 have been taken from the channel beds and washed downstream. So really big numbers, actually. And, uh, and what we were able to do is we showed, we calculated what had been lost from channel bed storage in terms of microplastics. And then we looked at the literature and thought, oh, we've got this big number. What does this number mean? Is it big? Is it, you know, how significant is it? And it, and it turned out it was about 1% of the existing estimates of the total amount of microplastics floating in the oceans. So if geographers, we're quite comfortable shifting from scale, local, regional, global. So um, we stuck our neck out and said, what this suggests is, is that the current estimates of microplastic contamination in the oceans must be really gross underestimates because our little rivers around Manchester in a single winter couldn't account for 1% of the global inventory of microplastics. That doesn't seem reasonable at all. So one of those numbers must be wrong. And we thought our numbers were pretty robust. So then quite a few scientists came out when our paper was published. And um, then that was the reason why it was a nature paper and said that actually we think there's the, the, the amount of microplastics in the ocean is an underestimate. And this kind of makes sense. So we were relieved by that. So, um, so this got me thinking at this point, John, which came on to the next paper that you mentioned that was published just last month, that um, two things. If river channel beds are heavily contaminated with microplastics, okay, uh, but flood events flush microplastics downstream, how the hell do river beds get contaminated in the first place? Where do those microplastics come from and how do they get to be on the channel beds? Now, an obvious source of microplastics are wastewater treatment plants. Uh, we know from the literature that there are lots of microplastics come out of wastewater treatment plants uh, and also combined sewer overflows. So um, that suggested to me that um, that suggests that to the only way you can get large concentrations, really high concentrations of microplastics on the channel bed, because many of these microplastics are quite buoyant, they'll, they'll float in the river system, is if you're introducing wastewater into rivers during low flows. So these are dry weather spills. Now the water companies should only be releasing wastewater into rivers during periods of what's called exceptional rainfall. So basically during flood events, and it's the old principle. So the, the sewage and the wastewater is diluted and it gets washed downstream. And that practice is well established. But what the water company shouldn't be doing is releasing significant quantities of wastewater during dry weather, during low flows. So we made the connection that the only way you can get very high concentrations of microplastics on the channel bed uh, is is if you're releasing wastewater at times when you shouldn't be releasing wastewater, something's gone wrong. So um, that was basically um, the Nature Sustainability paper because we designed an experiment to try and test those ideas and to look at this in much more detail. And, um, and that was our key conclusion. So that's kind of, that's been quite controversial. And of course the water companies aren't, aren't happy about that, but we make no apologies that they feel uncomfortable about that. that we, we, that's what the data point to. And um, we're trying to encourage them to, um, not to do those releases and to treat more of the wastewater because it's it's well known from the literature 
is that conventional wastewater treatment can remove up to 99% of the microplastics. So we're not asking them to, to, to do any, any fancy techno fixes. We're just asking them to treat the wastewater in the conventional way, because we know that's very good and very effective at removing waste, removing microplastics. And that's well established in the literature. So that's where we're up to at the moment. When we talk about microplastics, then what do we see? What are we looking at? What is what what is it? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, microplastics is, is a whole technically microplastics are plastic particles smaller than five millimeters. So that's half a centimeter. Now, most of the microplastics that we see are actually much smaller than that. Most of the microplastics that we see in these rivers are smaller than um, one millimeter. And the sort of microplastics we see, uh, we see fragments of plastic. So these are pieces of plastic that are broken down from larger plastic items. We see plastic fibers, synthetic fibers, uh, probably from, from laundry. From, um, and we also see microbeads. We still see lots of plastic spherical particles. Now, microbeads are primary microplastic particles. And uh, about half the microbeads, half the microplastics we see in the River Tame in the recent paper are microbeads. And, uh, and that's microbeads are really clear linked with the urban wastewater system, because the only way that microbeads can get into your river is if they're coming through wastewater treatment plants or from combined sewer overflows. So they are they, they get washed into the into the sewer network. So the presence of microbeads is really important. And that's just, that's just, that's uh, a clear link with, with urban drainage. Um, and the same with fibres as well. The fibres are normally, it's very difficult to get small synthetic fibres to, to be deposited on a channel bed because normally they just get washed downstream. Mm. So, because um, they're very buoyant. And the only way you can get them on the channel bed is if they're being introduced into the river in, a, in, a, in an effluent soup. Uh, and if they're biofouled, you know, with raw sewage, et cetera, et cetera. So we get the whole assemblage of microplastics on the bed. So those assemblages are really significant because the assemblages that we see are more like the assemblages of microplastics you, you, people have reported entering wastewater treatment plants. We're just seeing them come through untreated. So what we're seeing is, is a very clear signature of untreated wastewater. We also find other fibres as well that aren't plastic, things like cotton and wool and rayon, etc. These are all things that are products of, of laundry, uh, domestic commercial laundries. Uh, and again, we haven't reported those in the paper because they're not plastic, but they're part of this argument um, that th this is a very clear indicator of, of poor wastewater practice. Are microbeads the things that come from uh, cosmetics? Is it, is, are they that tiny or are they bigger than that? No, that's, well, that's the next paper. I'm writing that at the moment. It's um, Michael Gove, when he was Minister for the Environment, banned microbeads in personal care products in the UK in January 2018. And, um, and that was a really important and, and laudable thing to do. There'd been a big uh, global campaign by, by Greenpeace to see that happen. But um, microbeads are still extensively used in industrial processes um, and they aren't banned. And so the vast majority of the microbeads that we see come from industrial processes, things that are used in blast cleaning, shot blasting, that kind of thing. We're still seeing lots of those in, in, in UK rivers. So um, we need to have tighter regulation around those. That's a recommendation, the policy recommendation that we've made. So uh, the personal care products, well, I don't want to get too, too too much into that, but I don't think that was that was wasn't necessarily the we've 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 tackled the wrong part of the problem, in effect. So we need to catch up with that. What do they look like? Are they so tiny or well, you know, these are about um then they're not so tiny. And actually, these are the microbes that we see tend to be larger than the ones that you find in personal care products. They're about sort of 200 to 300 microns in diameter, often, you know, perfectly spherical, very, very distinctive, um, um, often made from uh, polyethylene, 
um, but they're very hard. So um, they're not the sort of things that you'd use in personal care products. They're, they're basically used for industrial purposes, for, for blast cleaning. They're used for taking, stripping paint off automotive parts without damaging them, the metal underneath, for example. All right. Do you know, I've not even thought of it like that. That's interesting. How often do uh, wastewater, does wastewater get expelled out of water treatment works? Is, is, it, is it a really major problem during dry weather? Well, in, that, interesting, that's, that's quite a controversial um, area. There's a really interesting bit of research by uh, a professor called Peter Hammond in, in Oxford that was published just earlier this year, just before our paper was, was finalised, actually. And uh, he's done research looking at discharges from, from, from sewage treatment plants or wastewater treatment plants. And uh, he concluded in that paper is that one of the problems we have in the UK at the moment is the water company is responsible. For this. They self-report these discharges. But they mark their own homework, in effect. Oh, right. and, uh, and he's looked at some of the discharges and, and looked at the, uh, looked at the, the flow curves and, and concluded that they seriously underestimate the num number of times that these discharges happen. Um, and I think in his paper, said up to a factor of two or three, it might be more, but I think more recently, it, it's even higher than that. So the Environment Agency published data for 2020 showing the pattern across uh, England and, and parts of Wales. Uh, and the, 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 the data don't look good. It, it's, um, it, it's, um, the, 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 there's a nationwide pattern of, um, of regular spills into water bodies, directly into rivers and directly into coastal waters. And Peter Hammond's work has suggested that actually that, that they, those data released by the Environment Agency are actually a, a major underestimate. And that tallies quite well with what we're finding because our microplastic signatures are a proxy for those discharges as well. So you're... You're creating warning bells ringing here. What are the water companies doing? Well, um, United Utilities released a statement when our when our paper came out. But the, the you know the, the water companies have a difficult job to do because they don't have any control of what's coming into their wastewater treatment plants. And of course, the ultimate solution to this is for all of us to use less plastic uh, and to, to to use alternative materials and to stop putting plastics into wastewater. So that's having better filters on washing machines, for example having better regulation for the use of microbeads in industrial premises, etc. So the water companies don't have any control about what's coming into their plants. Now, having said that, um, we know that conventional wastewater treatment will remove the vast majority of the microplastics, the existing treatment infrastructure that we have now. Mm. So what we're asking is, is for the water companies to make sure that they treat the vast majority of the wastewater. Uh, and we're not going to reduce our plastic use anytime soon. So the best solution we have, the best control we have, is to treat that wastewater and to extract those microplastics. Now, it's a it's, there's a different issue there about what you do with that sludge once it's full of microplastics. But, of course, there's a wider responsibility here as well, because all the microplastics that end up in rivers ultimately will end up in the ocean. So what our work has shown is, is that the data that we've shown in terms of the fluxes is that rivers are the a key contributor the dominant contributor, and other people have shown this as well, of microplastics to the oceans. So what we're showing is, is that water companies are the dominant supplier of microplastics to rivers, certainly in the UK. So therefore, if you want to tackle the World Ocean Day yesterday, if you want to tackle the global marine microplastic pollution problem, you need to keep microplastics out of rivers. And the key mechanism that we have available now to keep microplastics out of rivers is to treat the wastewater. That's the simple message. How confident are you then about policy change? 
because that's a really dramatic message and it's very clear. Well, um, actually, what's interesting at the moment, there's, 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 um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of momentum across the UK now for change. And this has mainly been driven by um, campaign groups and actually a lot of active, proactive MPs who are, uh, are very concerned about the increase in sewage discharge to UK rivers because people have seen the, the, the deterioration in the quality of their river environments. This is across the UK. This isn't just in urban rivers in the north of England, of Manchester and Leeds. This is in chalk streams in, 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 you know, in the home counties. So, uh, and this cuts across party lines. So um, there will be change and there's an environment bill that'll be going, going through parliament at the moment, but there's, a, there's an inquiry into river water quality, which has been run by the environmental audit committee. And one of the key areas that that's looking at is sewage discharge. Now, what we've done with our paper for the first time is we've made the explicit link between microplastic contamination in rivers and the discharge of untreated wastewater, which is basically sewage discharges, untreated wastewater, everything else that comes in. So that link is really important. So this is an extra powerful argument for ceasing those discharges, for better controlling those discharges. Now, the river channel beds are really important. And um, we sample river channel beds because they are a critical part of the river ecosystem. Because um, many creatures uh, live on the channel bed or they reproduce on the channel bed or they, they feed on the channel bed. So what, whether, you know, whether you're a, a waterfowl, fish, macroinvertebrates or, or, or whatever, the quality of the riverbed habitat is really important because it underpins the whole of the river and ecosystem. So if your riverbed is heavily contaminated with microplastics, and these microplastics have come from a wastewater treatment plant, so they're likely to be biofouled with all sorts of other pathogens and microbes that come out of sewage and wastewater, and they're sitting on the channel bed. Now, we're physical geographers. We're interested in, in materials that move through rivers. We're interested in where materials are stored in rivers. We're interested in how they're reactivated and moved, et cetera. So, the, the channel bed is really important because if you put microplastics on the channel bed in the summertime, they're likely to be stored there for weeks and months before they're washed away by the next big flood. We've established that. What that means is you're maximizing the opportunity for them to get into the food chain, for them to be ingested by primary and secondary ingestion. So you're contaminating the channel bed. That's the worst place in the river to contaminate at the worst possible time. So these dry weather spills have ecological implications. So we talk about these microplastics being bioavailable. Now you're maximizing their bioavailability by putting them on the channel bed. So now we're always, I'm not so naive as to think we're never gonna be able to get rid of microplastics completely. And we're always gonna have a certain quantity of microplastics in our rivers, in the water and on the channel bed. But we need to move towards, you know, what is a tolerable level of microplastic contamination? And, and some of the sites that we found are the most contaminated sites in the world. That isn't a tolerable level of microplastic contamination. We need to do better than that. So um, we've recognised the problem, and now you know this is just the beginning. We need to move towards policy, but also have conversations with ecologists to better understand what is a tolerable level of microplastic contamination. And that will be collaboration between physical geographers and ecologists, ecotoxicologists, etc. So that that's work in the future. It's just fascinating. It's. It's a, a perfect example of physical geographers working with a whole range of other scientists with outcomes that can influence policy development and absolutely. on a local and global scale. It's absolutely, but also, but it's geographers, it's geographers seeking to understand the underlying processes. You know, where are these materials coming from? 
How are they being transported through the river system? Where are they being deposited? So, you know, which is basically related to their bioavailability, um, quantifying those, those movements, and then, and then quantifying the fluxes downstream and thinking about the bigger picture, the contamination of the global ocean. So geographers are comfortable moving between scales, thinking about processes, and then hopefully thinking about the wider implications, and then we, we can get into, into policy. So uh, that geographical training is, is critical for looking at the drainage basin as a whole, taking a holistic view, thinking about the multiple, multiple sources, uh, et cetera. But also having an appreciation of the difficult challenges that the water companies are facing. But, uh, but we make no apologies for, for highlighting poor practice and, and, where, and where practice can be improved. I think we might well have just convinced a few A-level geographers to become fluvial geomorphologists. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for your enthusiasm and your, and your interest. Mm -hmm.